My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health, with assistance from WYPR. So welcome everybody, exciting for this day. I'm Dr. Shakobi Wilson. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland College Park. I'd like to welcome you to the ninth Siege UMD Environmental Justice and Health Disparities Symposium. So our keynote speaker for this morning is Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr. is one of the most innovative advocates and strategists for racial and climate justice. Reverend Yearwood founded the Hip Hop Caucus in 2004 to engage youth in the electoral process. The only institution of its kind is nonpartisan, multi-issue that uses the power of hip-hop culture. Hip-hop just turned 50, y'all. Think about hip-hop and what it means as the, the messaging, right? Communication, talking about social injustices. So you think about the work of hip-hop culture in advancing social movements. The caucus organized the Gulf Coast Renewal Campaign response to Hurricane Katrina and fought and advocated for justice for the Gulf Coast. The caucus also leads the longest running and biggest nonpartisan hip hop voter mobilization campaign, Respect My Vote. Reverend Yearwood hosts the award winning Climate and Environmental Justice podcast, The Coolest Show. I've been on The Coolest Show before, love that show. And is senior advisor of Bloomberg Philanthropies Beyond Petrochemicals campaign. He is a White House champion of change for climate leadership and, according to Rolling Stones, a new green hero. So again, backed by popular demand, the man, the visionary, the advocate, the activist, he's going to make you rise up, stand up, power, power, power with this keynote. Let's welcome Reverend Lennox Yearwood Jr. Come on, everybody. Amen. Um, first and, and foremost, let me uh, thank again the University of Maryland uh, School of Public Health and this Environmental Justice and uh, Health Disparities Symposium for having me. It is an honor um, and a privilege to be here with many friends, many colleagues, and many of you who are doing this critical and important work. Uh, I want to say for uh, my dear friend, uh, Dr. Kobe Wilson, that he has cl he clearly understands what it means to be both in the suites and the streets. And he understands how the academy should be used as a place for liberation, um, particularly for all people, but definitely of people of a darker hue. He understands that, and he has committed himself to that. And so with that, I hope you would give him another round of applause for all the work that he has done. Um, today is not an easy day, as many of you know, because while I enjoy seeing you, um, I am every day reminded by the crisis that we are in. 
it is more difficult to stand here when you see and hear 11,000 people were washed away, literally washed away in Libya. Folks like you and me who were doing their lives, going through what all of us go through, having problems with their children, going through with their spouse or their partner, trying to make ends meet, trying to do what they could do to put food on the table. And because of the climate crisis, they've been washed away. It's, it's difficult when you see uh, the grid in Texas not working because the fossil fuel industry, it's difficult to know that we had a hurricane that ran up through Tampa and on the western side of Florida. And before we can even assess the damage of that through Tallahassee and then through Charleston, we're still now dealing with the floods from Hurricane Lee in the northern part of the country. It's difficult when you see climate refugees all over the planet, when you see those fleeing the wildfires or those fleeing um, the heat in India or those literally doing all they can to survive both either a tropical storm or a tornado or an earthquake on the same day in California. It becomes difficult because we are way past a time when we should be talking about the crisis, but we should be moving into solutions. But that is not where we are. And we are in a place, even within our own movement, where our movement is still trying to figure out what it needs to do. I'm excited that next week is Climate Week. I'm excited that that is a time where we carve out the, the time for us to come together. It's very important. But to be honest, every week should be Climate Week. Every day, we should be marching in the streets. Um, the next generation will pay very close attention to what we did and what we didn't do. Um, before I get too deep into this conversation, um, I definitely want to just make sure and highlight the Hip Hop Caucus team. Um, the chief of staff is here, uh, Dr. Cynthia Swan, who is a graduate of this fine institution, University of Maryland. Dr. Cynthia Swan. So I'm here this morning uh, because we are in the midst of a climate crisis. And in that climate crisis, we will need the power of the people to change the politics around this crisis. Now, we all know that there are organizations and politicians and even former presidents who have said that the climate change is a hoax. 
to them, it's a, it's a hoax that flooding in Libya and earthquakes in Morocco have killed thousands. To them, it's a hoax that wildfires in California and hurricanes on the East Coast are creating climate migrants within these United States of America. To them, black people, brown people, indigenous people, Asian people who suffer from higher cancer rates from exposure to petrochemicals and PFAS are a hoax. So I'm here just to be very clear, because I know this is being taped and recorded, that any politician or any organization that says that climate change is a hoax is disqualified on that merit alone. We don't have to operate from their disoriented point of view of reality. This is our lunch counter moment of the 21st century. And we are at a lunch counter that is not just based on equality. We are at a lunch counter that is based on existence. We are fighting for our lives. And we have a right to clean air and a right to clean water. And it is critical for us to understand that this climate crisis is a crisis of racism. And therefore, we must connect the dots that climate justice is racial justice. We know that while we, yeah, you can give it up for that. I like that part. We can definitely give it up for that. While I love culture, as you can imagine, being the president of the Hip Hop Caucus, and please go to Hip Hop Caucus to see some of the amazing documentaries that we have created. Our most recent one um, was done by Dream Hampton. Um, about the floodings in Detroit. But the documentary by uh, Vice President Al Gore, while it was amazing, um, the inconvenient truth we now know wasn't just the climate crisis, it was white supremacy. So what does it mean that climate justice is racial justice? So let me take you back home to my home state of Louisiana. Most people know of New Orleans and Louisiana now because of that inconvenient truth and know it primarily because of Hurricane Katrina, those of you in the climate movement. What most people don't know is that there is a region within my state um, that is called Cancer Alley. And if you know about Cancer Alley, which you may not know, that it is an 85-mile stretch of Louisiana, and it is home to the highest concentration of plastic plants, oil refineries, petrochemical facilities, many which are financed and owned by foreign corporations 
making this particularly black region one of the most toxic areas in the world. The stretch along the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans is dotted with over 150 refinery plants, many related to the petrochemical industry. What's also more hideous is that these folks in these corporations and these facilities understand that these toxins are directly related to the climate crisis. In essence, understanding that they know they are on the Titanic, but they are paving their way for our death by their greed. To be very clear, their business plan means a death sentence for my community. But before being named Cancer Alley to show how hideous these organizations are, this region was labeled plantation country. It was a moniker that had a long history of racism, as you can imagine, as well as the disenfranchisement of black voters. What's so crazy right now is that they are so evil they are now building their plants where plantations used to stand. They would rather continue this extractive mentality even to our death. So I want to bring up a couple of people from my region. One is Gail LaBeouf. Um, Gail LaBeouf has lived in Cancer Alley all her life. She is the founder, one of the founders of a group called Inclusive Louisiana an organization that fights against petrochemicals and LNG build-out in Cancer Alley. I want to bring her in because one thing we're seeing here is that without, throughout the country, most of the people who are fighting um, for environmental justice are particularly black, brown, and indigenous, and particularly women of color. But they are not the ones who are being funded to do the work right around the corner from Gail. Gail lives in her area. She is fighting these plants. She's a context. She says, straight out of Covenant. Y'all know Covenant, Louisiana. She says, straight out of, y'all know, y'all, 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 y'all ain't see straight out of, okay, anyway, let me keep it moving on that. I think y'all might have known straight out of Compton, but straight out of Covenant, you know what I mean? And she's right there. And she has been fighting these fights forever. The thing, the other day I was home in Louisiana and I ran into Gail and she was telling me more about how they want to build more petrochemical facilities. They want to continue to do this, she said, Rev. And Rev, she says that they want to expand these facilities throughout my community. And then she hit me with this. Dr. Wilson, she said that I can't keep fighting no more, Rev. I said, Gail, you can fight, because you are a fighter. She said, I can't keep fighting the same way, Rev, because I am going to die soon. I have cancer, and they've got me. And I hope when you go up there to that big school and the University of Maryland and you tell them about 
what's happening here in Cancer Alley. That they don't sit around there and uh, get caught up with the paralysis of analysis. That they don't get caught up there with just trying to use this opportunity for a career move. That they don't get caught up with trying to get the next grant or the next opportunity to fund their organization. That they don't get caught up that this is how they can get into the fast lane for their career. Tell them, Rare, that I have cancer and I'm here in Cancer Alley. And tell them, Rare, that these corporations are killing black people. And they are hoping that we are exterminated before we can do anything to stop this madness. I am hoping that there are some good folks up there at the University of Maryland. And I hope that the other colleagues who join with them and come all around to have a symposium, that they understand that there are folks who are dying because we live right next to these facilities. We are in the sacrifice zones. I did not even know what a sacrifice zone was, Rev, but I heard somebody talk about it. And so now it seems like something that is where I live. It seems like my community that I love so much, where I had my children, where I married my first and second husband. And, and it seems like in this community where I've lived my whole life, before these plants were put here, before they looked me in the eye and told me that they would be good jobs and good careers. Before I buried my first husband and before I buried some of my children and buried many of my family members, and they now will bury me. Tell them this is not a game. Tell them to please do that thing called environmental justice. And right around from Yale, there's another Shiro by the name of Sharon Levine. Many of her have heard about her. She runs an organization called Rise St. James, and she is also dealing with the realities of so many folks in her community who are facing extermination, where they are intensely sickening our people, take and poison our land, and even limit our voting rights so we don't have any fight within us. And there are folks like Shane Levine who fought against the Formosa plant, which is another foreign corporation, shaking hands with the sons and daughters of former plantation owners to kill and exterminate black people. Now, Ms. Sharon here has a strong faith and believes that God will 
figure out a way somehow. But she also believed that faith without works is dead. But we must connect all of these dots. Because earlier this year in Atlanta, in January, a beautiful non-binary force defender named Tortuguita was assassinated simply fighting for the forest to be saved. In that, my story of climate justice and racial justice is put together very well. Because unfortunately, what we have now realized that it doesn't matter if you're black or white or brown, straight or gay, theist or atheist, if you are a politician who is citing on the side of corporations and industry, we are now realizing that it doesn't matter what your background is, but your mission of genocide remains the same. So in Atlanta, um, they are dealing with Cop City, and it is truly an intersection of our work on climate justice and racial justice. And the Hip Hop Caucus in particular has been supporting local coalitions and citizens in the backyards of black and brown communities before the tearing down of the existing green spaces in these communities. What's important about this is that we're now seeing that when you are successful, they have been given every challenge in the book come to city council, raise up a referendum, bring it to a vote, raise money. Every challenge was given to these forest defenders and environmentalists. It's gotten so bad, though, that when the system, I'll call it that, realized that the people being organized was coming together, they have now even filed RICO charges against these forest defenders and try to seize them. It's that serious. Again, when one's business plan means a death sentence for another's community, you should expect them to do everything they can. So let me say three things and then that I think we need to do next. One, let me be very clear that I applaud this administration for what they have been doing. I encourage you to please go to my podcast, The Coolest Show, to check out particularly the last two uh, episodes. One that was very powerful, which is with Jahi Wise, who's an EPA, whose job is to give out $27 billion. You should listen to that. There really should be no one in this room who should not go to the Coolest Show um, podcast if you want to hear him himself 
and listen to Jahi Wise break down what it means to give away the $27 billion. The episode before that was with the Honorable Shalanda Baker from the Department of Energy. Those are two, there's many, obviously, you can go back and hear Dr. Wilson and there's many, my dear brother Mustafa Ali, and there's many, many others you can listen to. My, I was may you know that I was raised by Dr. Beverly Wright, so obviously, you know, I'm so glad that she's not here to talk about how she changed my diapers and that story <laughs> I have heard for the past 40 plus years, but, um, <laughs> but you can hear me talk with her and she doesn't even, she don't call me Rev. She just, she says Lens, because you know, when you, when, when you raise somebody, nicknames don't matter to you. I didn't know him as Rev. Y'all call him Rev. I call him Lynn. That's how Dr. Wright will deal with that. So I'm very happy of the administration and what it has accomplished. But let me be very clear with this administration. While we are excited about the $27 billion you can listen to with Jahi Wise on the Coolest Show, I'm excited about parts of the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, it does do some damage to certain communities. I am excited about the recent um, rulings to stop um, some of the harm in the Arctic. I'm excited about the bipartisan infrastructure law. Let me be very, very clear. This is not a time for lukewarm administration. And what we need from this administration to understand is that you cannot talk about renewables on Monday and LNG on Wednesday. That is not climate leadership and not discuss solar panels on Tuesday and fracking on Thursday. That is not climate leadership. This is not the time. You, you, you cannot discuss uh, the, the need for a strong plastics treaty from the outside and then go to France and Nairobi on the inside and not, that is not climate leadership. You, you cannot say that we need to have true climate movement, but you're not willing to declare a climate emergency that is not climate leadership. You cannot say that you need for us to stop our dependence on fossil fuels, but you are embracing fossil barons at the COP conference. That is not climate leadership. What we need now is climate leadership. I am hopeful that no matter whatever else happens with the current administration, particularly for President Biden and Vice President Harris, that they understand that it is really the next generation that will determine how well they have done, not this one. We will, we're just the voters. We're just here for the ride. But it will be those who will come by 50 and 60 years ago who either applaud this administration, or they will say they did nothing. So these are the three things that I think need to happen. If they are in the room or watching this, then I would love to then tell them. The first thing that I would say that we must stop the expansion of petrochemicals across the country right now. Second, we must ban vinyl chloride. Um, and we must do all we can to stop not only our addiction to fossil fuels, but also 
to plastics. Single-use plastics will also be the demise for us as well. And so we must stop that, and particularly the vinyl chloride that was imploded in East Palestine. East Palestine also showed us where our movement has gone wrong. Because while there are clearly sacrifice zones and there are clearly frontline communities, what East Palestine showed us that we are all frontline communities. A train can go through your community and you can be right in harm's way. It also showed us when I went to East Palestine with Aaron Brockovich, one of the things that was amazing to me that, one, I was... You know, I was never hugged by so many white people in one place. It was just a little unusual for a brother from Louisiana to get that many hugs. It was, it was good, though. I, was, I got into it at the end, though. It was all right. I mean, this Ohio love was, was wonderful. But one of the things there, which that showed me that not only are we human, but the one thing that that showed me is that when I begin to tell those communities that they were EJ, communities. They said that, no, we're not EJ communities because EJ is only for black people. So that shows you that somehow we have siloed even this conversation, that people don't really understand what environmental justice is, that they think it is something that is just for poor and black people off to the side. That is not the case. If you go to Appalachia or Valley, they will tell you what it means, but we, this movement somehow, particularly from some of our other folks who are high class, Vermont, Brooklyn, and in Berkeley, they will somehow think that EJ is a subset of the climate movement, and that must be changed. EJ, the justice, must be the Solution. It must be the prescription for the climate crisis. It cannot be layered on as an offset for what needs to be done. And the last thing the mission should do is that we must declare a climate emergency. That must be done. Let me finish by saying this. I was very honored to speak at the 60th March on Washington. In some aspects, I was the only person who was asked to speak on climate change. Um, that is not an honor. I'm so glad that the Washington Informer brought that out. There are too many amazing, beautiful, powerful people who can speak on the issue of the climate crisis. The fact that they looked and selected me as one of the speakers over an eight-hour period of speeches to speak in the first hour of that eight hours shows that we have a disconnect between the climate justice movement and the civil and human rights movement. There's something that is disconnected, that we are siloed, and no progressive siloed movement succeeds. And so we are siloed. So that's the first thing that we need to fix. But I spoke and I made the claim that I am not 
the only one. There are many like me. But I was the only, there was only actually two of us who spoke on the issue of climate at the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. Again, myself and Senator Cory Booker. I don't know what happened to Senator Cory Booker this time. We, I thought we would at least get to three, but we went down a notch after that. But the problem is this. We have to be careful that we are not preaching to the choir. We have to take the words of Gail LeBluff from inclusive Louisiana very seriously that those of us who have this privilege of doing this work in these types of settings do not get comfortable with the setting that we're in. If you are here today and this is just routine conference type of organizing, when you know where the badges are and you know where to get the breakfast and you know, if this process is a part of the process and you're starting to see the same people at all the same conferences, then we are preaching to the choir. And it isn't so much the job of the civil and human rights. I'm so happy that there are folks from the NWCP and other organizations who are beginning to reach out. But we must do what we must do to encourage that we must break down the silos, particularly the silos within a segregated progressive climate movement. We are at a time now that 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years from now, that humanity is going to pollute itself into extinction. And we are at a time when I am raising my voice so that the next generation can at least know that there were some humans who are part of humanity who understood that their lives would be horrible. Because if it was horrible in 2023, and it was the hottest month after the hottest month back then, and you were having, a, if you were not moved by the fact that 11,000 human beings, mothers and fathers and children and babies, were washed away this week. If you can sit down there and find yourself in a commonplace, in a place where you just feel like you are still going about the business of going about the business, then let me tell you, you might be in the wrong line of work. This may not be the place that you need to be. If you can sit comfortably knowing that there are those in Morocco 
There are those in India. There are those in Pakistan. There are those in Canada. There are those in California. But let me just bring it on home. There are those in Prince George's County. There are those in Montgomery County. There are those in Frederick. There are those in Northwest and Southwest and Southeast. There are those right around your neighborhood who are dying every day from asthma and emphysema and cancer. But if you can sit there and shuffle papers, then this may not be for you. But if you are about fighting for humanity, and if you don't care who is in the way, what institution, what job, what political party, whoever may be in your way, but you are destined to fight for humanity, then this is the place that you need to be. Because this is about organizing people and organizing them for our survival. And I believe this, that organized people beat organized money every single time. As long as we organize. So I close here in the spirit of Dr. King. Because yesterday was the sixth anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, where we have seen that every time we rise up like the March on Washington, that those who are evil try to push us back and kill us and hold us back. And so I stand here today, not knowing who's in this audience, not knowing what fossil fuel industry may be getting mad by Rev's intensity. And I pray that I have a long life. I pray that I can see my children get old. But if that is not the case, I pray that we can have clean air and clean water for the next generation. And that one day, in the words of Dr. King, when he said, back then dealing with equality, that one day, to infuse and envision that future, that one day we'll be free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty we're free at last. I can look around this room and see black folk and white folk and brown folk and red folk, straight folk, and, 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 and queer folk and non-binary folk and, and theist folk and atheist folk. I can see that we've come a long way in that. But now we're fighting for extinction. So now I call for our next generation of children. So Kobe's kids and your kids and the next generation will rise up. So they won't just say free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty we're free at last. The next generation will rise up because we have transitioned from fossil fuels to clean energy. And they will rise up and they will come together and they will say that we're now, we are now fossil free at last. Fossil free at last. Thank God Almighty we are fossil free at last. All power to the people. Thank you. This is My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know 
so they can grow and help things flow in their communities. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Dr. Wilson out. You've been listening to My Black Counts. My Black Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at ceejh.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review.